beloved, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you. I'm going to be reading uh, this morning from Mark chapter 1, and I'm reading from the Kingdom Translation. Kingdom New Testament, it's a translation by N.T. Wright. Um, this past week, again, at the beginning of a new year. Happy New Year, everyone, right? Um, and yet, uh, Happy New Year, right? Um, I, I, I was pondering this as I began to pray, and specifically this morning, or the, it was one of the early mornings this past week, and I, the, the image that was brewing in my mind was the day that, I think it was like the 10th, or we've gone through, by the way, 12 days of Christmas ended on Friday, and yesterday was Epiphany. Happy Epiphany, everybody. Now you can take your Christmas tree down. By the way, um, I, I told my wife, who said, we should get the tree down before it snows. I said, no, honey, it's not Epiphany. And she walked away and said, I don't know why Tiffany has the word in this. And I said, oh, that was kind of funny. Anyway, uh, but yesterday was Epiphany, the day that we remember that the wise men came. And today is the day on, our, on the church calendar that we celebrate both Epiphany but also um, in the Epiphany was the coming of the wise men, but today is the day that we celebrate Jesus' baptism. So I, I was praying this past week, a few days back, remembering the, the massacre of the innocents. And there's a lot that's been said about this. Uh, some that say, well, we don't have historical documentation. Uh, truth is, there may have been only about 300 people living in Bethlehem at the time, so it may not have been thousands of babies, but the point is that it was violent power at work. And I was pondering this idea uh, about how we have lived in a world that we have interpreted peace and safety through the lens of the use of violent power. And so I'm just praying into this again with this, thinking into the new year. Um, oh, my goodness. All the, I mean, the headlines make your head spin. And, and there's pictures, you know, hypersonic, bomb, or hypersonic missiles being used in the Ukraine. Now missiles from the North uh, Korea being used in the Ukraine. And we're, images that... I, the, none of us emotionally have the capacity to digest every day. Um, leveled cities and smoke, you know, billowing up. And, like, we all know what's, what that is. That isn't just a leveled out. They didn't just, like, demolish a building. There's lives taken in a moment, babies and again, in this context of the massacre of the innocents and the, the weeping of Rama, and it's like, oh, Lord. I, so it's, it's hard to find a news source that isn't reminding us of the horror that's occurring in the world around us today. And so the title I've given the message this morning is, where do we start? Um, how do we start this new year? And, and any way to attempt to understand, how, you know, how do I walk into this? Attempts to understand violence has been oftentimes one of the things that we want to do is we want to, like, especially those of us who are enlightened in the, what is this, post-modernity, right? My wife's been reading books about post-modernity, where we are in human history. All right. 
Well, oftentimes when we see these things, we're like, I want to understand. And so we want to hear, why would someone do this? And, and then we hear justifications being made for it. Bloody, retaliatory violence. And particularly this thing that's going on in Israel. I, I have found myself in more than one instance being in the uncomfortable position of being in a conversation in which I was challenged that not taking a side was unacceptable. And, and, and that I couldn't just denounce violence. That I needed to, I, I've got to come down on the side of something. So, and now we're hearing discussions, by the way, about ceasefire. And um, can I just say something? I, I don't often do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, go here. I don't usually get political that much. Well, although the gospel is political uh, because it affects how we live is my point. Uh, but ceasefire is not what is needed. An ending of war. And Jesus came to close the book on violence and war. And what we often want to do is try to figure out how do we live and keep our head or our life wrapped around something like this. The longer I study the life of Jesus, and I want to say that for the Ukraine, for Israel, for Gaza, the longer I study the life of Jesus, the more I'm convinced that he is not interested in justified violence, retributory justified violence. He closed the book on it. He came, think about this, what we just celebrated. Jesus came into a violent world as a baby, and his very presence, this is what I was praying about early in the morning, his presence seen as a threat and responded to in violence in the taking of babies' lives in Bethlehem, and the weeping, think about this, the weeping for the innocent ones has not ended, has it? And, and I, I, I'm just I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, Lord, here's the truth. So much of the thinking that I have grown up in in the West, we have had an image of justice that looks more like John Wayne than Jesus Christ. Is, yeah? And we continue to underscore that. So there's this no end to, quote, redemptive violence. It's portrayed in story form over and over again. Yet Jesus comes and he takes a cross and he renounces the sword forever. Oh, some may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. What about that thing where he's in the book of Revelation and sword's coming out of his mouth? We're going to get the sword. Well, theologically speaking, can we just rightly see this? The, the Scripture proclaims that it's his words that are the, word, the sword that divides, that separates between truth and error. This isn't about taking off heads. It's about revealing what's true. That's the sword that comes out of his mouth. So the gospel of Jesus comes to reveal an image of God to a world that... And, and what it does is heals the world, not by redemptive violence. A king, where is this king? And he lays down the sword, and he absorbs the violence of our, our violence to redeem mankind. That 
is the gospel. So where do we start? Where did this year start? Violence in classrooms. God have mercy. In neighborhoods, in cities leveled beyond recognition, God have mercy. Where do we start? I pray this almost every day. Blessed are those who mourn and lament. We've got a lot to mourn and lament over. One of the most powerful observations I heard my wife make uh, is that in the face of sadness and violence, and she'll say this to you, you know, she said, I feel it in my body almost every day. Um, we grieve. We don't choose sides and assign blame. But here's what I heard Denise say that I want to give her credit for that is so dead on. Our grief, our grief, has hope. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Our comfort isn't not, not that our weak ideas of justice, you know, redemptive justice, retaliatory justice, we're going we're gonna to remove the bad guys. Our comfort is God's justice. Listen to how this is worded in the prayer of the week from the common book of prayer this past week. Oh, God who wonderfully created, yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. You image bearer. God created you. Grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Isn't that good? This is, this is the powerful word of the Advent. So interesting that our lectionary text for this Sunday, today, comes from the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 1. And I want to read this out of the Kingdom uh, trans. Uh, what did I tell you this? Yeah, the, yeah, the Kingdom New Testament. It starts with the, this proclamation. This is where the good news starts. The good news of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son. Isaiah the prophet put it like this. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of me, and he will clear the way for you. A shout goes up in the desert, make way for the Lord. Clear a straight path for him. John the baptizer appeared in the desert. He was announcing a baptism of repentance to forgive sins. The whole of Judea and everyone who lived in Jerusalem went out to him. They confessed their sins and were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore camel hair clothes with a leather belt around his waist. He used to eat locusts and wild honey. Someone a lot stronger than me is coming close behind, John used to tell them. I don't deserve to squat down and undo his sandals. I've plunged you into water. He's going to plunge you in the Holy Spirit. This is how it happened. Around that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the River Jordan. That very moment, as he was getting out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit coming down like a dove onto him. Then there came a voice out of the heavens. You are. You are my son. You are the one I love. You are. Make me very glad. To understand 
the way that Mark begins his gospel. See, this isn't just a cool greeting. Mark's gospel, let me try to be quick with this, but it's important that we get the context of this. Mark's gospel is the first one written. Some that say there is another document that some of the gospel writers leaned upon. I'm not even worried about trying to discuss that or debate it. It was called, uh, some theologians refer to it as a, called the Q document, but that's not the point. The point being that Mark comes and he records this full gospel, but it's it moves quickly. It's shorter, but he begins very quickly by making this proclamation. This is where the good news starts. Where do we start? The good news of Jesus the Messiah. Most scholars locate Rome as, uh, excuse me, Mark as he's writing this in Rome. Around somewhere around AD 70. That's right about the time of the fall of Jerusalem. Now just before this, as Mark is compiling and putting together this gospel and he's in Rome, he's in the atmosphere of Rome, which is a hellish place by this point for anyone who names the name of Christ. Known for its extravagance and its tyranny, it's, it's ruled by the emperor Nero at the time until A.D. 68. Nero was, he's kind of a nut job. Nero, it's said that he, many believe he set the city on fire so that he could, he could build another portion of the city and rebuild it the way he wanted it to be to, uh, as far as celebrating who he was. And some say that he played the fiddle while he watched the city burn. And then he blamed it on Christians so that wholesale persecution could begin against Christians. My point being, between 64 and 70, it's not a good time to be a Christian in Rome. AD 66, two years after the fire, Titus has now begun to put down a Jewish revolt that's happening in Palestine. It's specifically targeted against Jews. And it that the goal of this is to completely remove any Jewish expression uh, in, in all of Palestine. And in the end, when it's finally done, between taking four years before Jerusalem falls, they literally remove Israel from the face of the earth. They wipe out Jerusalem, they burn the temple, they outlaw the language, they rename the country. That's all documented. Now, that's the world. Mark is in as he's writing this gospel. Now, let me give you one other context, which is this. Mark is living in Rome. Uh, Nero, <clears throat> you know, some say Rome has completely had completely lost its mind between 64 and 68, but Nero likely did because he takes his life, AD 68. After he dies, I'm trying to be really quick here because I want us to get the atmosphere. Okay, those of you who are anxious, anxious about this year, think about this. 64, big fire, Rome burns, persecution, whole sale against Christians. 68, Nero commits suicide. What happens then? There are, it's said that the year that followed was the year the four emperors, the, the entire Roman Empire is, is divided into four different empires. 
But then later that year, Vaspian wages war against the other three emperors in this divided empire. He enters into Italy from Egypt, defeats the sitting emperor, Batilus, and is declared emperor of Rome. AD 68, right about the time Mark is writing this. There's a celebration that goes out across Rome. And the name of the celebration is called Good Tidings. In every city, they celebrate, watch this, quote, good news. Rome has been reunited under one emperor. We bring you good tidings and good news. In a world wondering what was going to happen next, they looked to their political leadership and they're celebrating good tidings. They're proclaiming good news. This is where Mark has the audacity to say, this, I'm locating for you where the good news is, where the good tidings is. Jesus, the Messiah, beloved, we proclaim the same this morning as every follower of Jesus. Amen? In a world asking, I don't know what this year is going to look like. What's, what's next? Anything but this year. Mark locates the good news not in a political savior or the hope of personal security, something most followers of Jesus had no hope for in that time. Mark locates the good news, not in empire or the emperor, but in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Today, beloved, we locate the good news of our life in the man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Oh, to study his life. Let me, let me try to briefly... If you allow me, I'm well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go here anyway. Um, <clears throat> but I, to, to understand both the declaration of Mark, here's the good news, and this is where he begins this gospel is in the baptism of Jesus. First John's baptism, and in the baptism of Jesus. Let me give again just a little historical context to the baptism. Because baptism wasn't just an idea that John the Baptist came up with. You remember God's people were held captive in a country called Egypt, right? And God says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a deliverer. And Moses comes and God leads the people out after 400 years of slavery in Exodus 14. And they are mar marching out like soldiers, even though they'd never seen war. Their arms were filled with gold that they hadn't earned. And God leads them to camp right next to the Red Sea with mountains on one side, the Red Sea on the other. And then Pharaoh and his army come, and there is no way out. What next? God leads them through, right, through the Red Sea. And see, what is, what's theologically true about this is this. That as God parts the sea, um, God takes his people, and the, prom the promise of God meets the people of God with hope. Write that down, okay? Because this is good news. God's promise is always about meeting his people with hope. So here's the theology behind it. 
when they pass through the Red Sea, they're forever bound to this idea of hope. So the practice of baptism was this idea of coming through the water, and it was connected not only to coming through the Red Sea, but also to creation itself. Remember, in Genesis 1, the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters, right? And, and the word that's used there is waters of chaos and darkness, and God brings light and life, order, beauty. And, and so in this place where there's chaos and darkness, God reveals light. Over that, over hovering over that place of the waters, God brings light. And so the Hebrew word for baptism, mikvah, literally means to be bound to hope. So God's people from the time of coming through the Red Sea, begin this practice of baptism. Ceremonial cleansing, but it's to be reminded, oh, yes, God brought us through. Oh, he, he brought life, and he brought us through. He brought us out and through. And so that's where we begin to see this practice of, of going into the water to be cleansed, to be bound to the promise of hope in the face of uncertainty. Okay, everybody got the context? Yes? Say yes with me. Yeah, all right. So we have the baptism of John, but what was particular peculiar about the baptism of John was that it wasn't about a ceremonial cleansing. You're not just doing this to like, oh yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jewish dude, and I remember Abraham. John was saying, uh, you know what? Not only do you need to go through this and remember the, our story as God's people, but, but here's what it means. It means that you need to repent in your life and your lifestyle. It means the way that how you live and inhabit the world must change. It means that you repent, and it's more than just feeling sorry for your mistakes, but to agree with God's opinion about the world. Now, John says, behold, the way of the Lord, it's different. It's not like you've known. You, you can't live in a world where we exercise violence in the way that we do and expect God's justice. It's a, it's a world in which you inhabit the world around you way differently. You bind yourself to the promise of God's hope. That's the baptism of John. It's about repentance. Then comes the baptism of Jesus. Oh, by the way, uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 3, it's the prophet Jeremiah that uses the word for baptism to actually describe God himself. You are my hope, the hope, the mikvah of Israel. Jesus comes in obedience to be baptized. Now think about this. The God, the actual God who hovered over the waters of creation, who parted the Red Sea, comes to be baptized. He, he and, and he's coming to proclaim that he's gone, that there's another way. Jesus is not only revealing what God looks like, he's revealing that we can be actual human beings that live in and from a different place. And so when this baptism occurs, Mark records that John sees another realm. He sees the spirit descending like a dove. Did he actually see a dove? I don't know. The point is, he saw something. And then he hears a voice saying, you're my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. You are my beloved. He hears with his ears the good opinion of the Father. So all the images of an ungenerous, uncaring, disconnected father 
They've got a faith. Because this is, this is the father saying, you're my son. And, and what it in, in the original words means is that you're of my kind. Heaven has come for earth to reveal heaven. And again, beloved, let's proclaim this regularly without violence. He, you know, so Jesus bound himself in hope, and he hears the good opinion of his father. His blessing, you are my beloved in, he, in whom I have delight, is a first-person declaration. Can I just say this, sidebar this, never forget it. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that a good opinion that Mark heard, Listen to these words from Jesus in John 17. He's saying, oh, Father, I want them to be one. Some of you are familiar with that prayer, right? That We call it the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying that we would be one even as the Father and he are one. And then John 17, 23, he said that, that, you would, that they would know you love them, put your name there, with the same passionate love that you have for me. When I hear the baptism of Jesus and Mark hears that proclamation, he's saying that about you. I love you. Now, where do we start 2024? I'm thinking, Lord, I want to continue in a path of repentance that looks like that my heart and my mind are captured and bound to hope. This is what a regular prayer liturgy is about. It's not just rehearsing the same words. It's about proclaiming what's true. The way you feel about your son is the way that you feel towards me. What's next, Pastor? Let's go to a prophetic conference. Nothing wrong if you want to go to one. But I, I, I think the most important thing is that we know where, how we're invited to live, not what is going to happen. Where do I start? I hear the call to change my mind. It might begin with me proclaiming, that there's still good news for my family and for myself and for our culture in 2024. Is there an amen? And it's found by preparing a way for Jesus in my life. Like there's another way to inhabit this world. Will I bind myself, my life, to that kind of hope? I was praying, again, early one of these mornings this last week, and I read a quote by Frederick Buckner that said this, a Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing. What a silly thing that we've often thought that our Christianity was trying to prove a point to somebody else, but rather there's something about his eyes and his voice there's something about the way that he carries his hands and his head, the way that he carries his cross, the way that he carries me. There's something about Jesus. Oh, Lord, I want that to capture me. That's what a Christian points to. That we can begin to say all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Lord, I want to know Christ. 
I want to behold. I want to study the ways of Christ. One of the things I'm committed to do this year is to learn and to study humility because as I study the life of Jesus, I see the most humble man that's ever lived. Am I beholding a future in humility and hope? Or am I beholding it in fear? Because here's what happens with fear. We begin to imagine a future and a world without God. And so we try to figure out a way that we're going to protect ourselves. And suddenly separation and division occurs. Lord, I I want to surrender to the posture in the presence of Jesus. Beloved, in a world that is asking what is next, Mark locates the good news not in a political savior or hope of personal security. He locates the good news not in empire or the emperor, but in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and beloved. That remains good news. Amen? I want to invite us this morning, as we start this new year, we're going to just in a few moments take communion together for the first time in this year. So I'm going to invite us to share this prayer. It's, again, another prayer that I read out of one of my other prayer books. There's a pile of them on my desk, okay? uh, I should be able to remember the title of this one. It's really simple. Um, Remind somebody's. I'll try to remember to send this without the name of it. Oh. Anyway, um, it's just not coming to me. But uh, let's, let's go ahead and stand this morning and pray this prayer together. <clears throat> that as we live in a world that we're tempted to fear, that we begin with this prayer this morning. Let's pray this together. Loving God, replace my fears with love. Where I fear lack, bring abundance. Where I fear sickness, bring wholeness. Where I fear others, bring reconciliation. Where I fear being wrong, bring freedom. Forgive the ways I use fear as an excuse to limit love. Let me pause here for a moment. It isn't just that we use it to limit love. We also use it as a means of separating ourselves. Okay, let's continue. Forgive me when I use my thoughts and words as tools of fear. You are love. Humanity is your beloved. I often forget this in my fears. Today, I wish to remember. Lord, as we come to this table of remembrance, we're believing you, Lord, that you would not only bring, uh, bring to mind what is true. Lord, you brought us through And you have now, Lord, given us, as we take of this cup and of this bread, we proclaim your life and your death, that we would forever be bound together in hope, the hope that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, together we confess we've missed the mark. We've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself, and we are truly sorry, and we humbly repent and ask for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory and to the honor of your name. I'm going to invite you to come as you feel led. If you came prepared to give, 